0: presents Movies Till Dawn for your late-night entertainment. Tonight, heaven can wait.
1: Welcome to Movies Till Dawn a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond Felita, and today, I'm Jewish. I want you to hear part two of a conversation I had with my friend Griffin Dunn. Griffin comes from a, a very interesting family. If you don't know this, I'll, I'll, I'll sketch it in quickly. Uh, His father was Dominic Dunn, and Dominic Dunn, of course, was a best-selling novelist, a very distinguished investigative reporter, um, very involved with the O.J. Simpson trial. uh, But he was also a movie producer, or mostly a television producer, according to Griffin. Um, It was was an interesting life that, that his father had, and his father's brother, John Gregory Dunn, was a marvelous novelist. Uh, And we talk a little bit about, in this interview, about John Gregory Dunn's novels, which I've loved. Just to make it even more impressive, John Gregory Dunn was married to Joan Didion. And I can't tell you about Joan Didion. If you don't know her, look her up. I mean, of course you know her. She's Joan Didion. She's amazing. And Griffin made a wonderful movie about Joan Didion, um, which you can find. It was not yet finished when we recorded this, this conversation. Um, but, but Griffin comes from a lot of that kind of accomplishment and a lot of that seriousness. And yet one of the things I love about Griffin is it's all very light with him. He takes it all with a wonderful grain of salt. And I think it comes across in this interview. You did, uh, you produced, but did not act in one of my favorite films, Running on Empty. Mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet directed it. Naomi Foner
0: wrote it, right? Uh, River Phoenix was, what, maybe 14 in this movie? Yeah. Uh, um, no more like 16, but he was emancipated, so we like shot really grown-up hours and everything.
1: Had you, did you guys find the script? Did you put no, it together? Or?
0: No, well... Amy and I had wanted to, we were really interested in what became of who was left underground from the Weathermen and, and, and various, you know, radical groups that had, had just disappeared. And, and you know, the Brinks robbery had happened and, you know, Patty Hearst, of course, had happened. There was like a, there was still this sort of underground fringe left. I fear that they might be called the alt-left Alt- coming <laughs> up, um, which I, I, I kind of. But that's another story. Uh, it's another worry, rather. But at that time, there was a radical left, right? And we read, it must have been about a two-inch article, in 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 the paper about the kids. These kids growing up, their parents had left, abandoned them um, with with some other family, not knowing what their kids, what their parents, quite did, or being old enough to quite understand it, and uh, it just sparked so many thoughts and story idea and we were very interested in it from the kids point of view and and, and it, we were attracted to the family side of it and uh so we we talked with different writers about it and um we talked with naomi who couldn't have been more of a perfect person to do it and she was a red diaper baby from the upper west side and right. grew up like that we um you know, did the normal pitching and company called Lorimar. And Bernie Brillstein was running it. He gave us a development deal, and then we went and uh, went after, made directors' lists, and Sydney was of course right there. Mm-hmm. And we went to his house, just Amy and I, and he wanted to see if we get along, and he loved the script, and he also knew this would be another one because we were suddenly associated if it was really cheap and. <laughs> to make you get punished for making bringing movies in on time sometimes you mm-hmm. know well he was he was famous well he could do for,
1: it for coming in under for coming in yeah. under
0: you know ron silver used to say to him you know because he'd only do one or two takes at most with the actors and he go sydney get let me try i can do this in less than a take it was just that He was that fast and i think he was the only director amy and i ever said you know We're not in that big of a hurry. (laughs) 20 years ago, his parents protested the Vietnam War. I was wondering if Michael had ever mentioned anything to you about his old school. I'm a liar. My name isn't Michael. My parents are Arthur and Annie Pope. My God, Annie, why'd you throw it all away? A story of love, loyalty, and letting go. Running on Empty, directed by Sidney Lumet. He was one of those guys that you just... I wasn't thinking about being a director at the time, but I realize now I was so influenced by him. So many things... By Lunette. Yeah, yeah. So many things that he did stayed with me that I learned about, and the way he talked about actors, and the way he supported them, and when he wanted to, like, get tough, and the rehearsing was, fa- you know, just fascinating. He does, you know? He did the whole... He does the tape on the ground and the dimensions of the... So when I directed my first... Feature it was called addicted to Love. I did the exact same thing it It becomes more and more problematic to get actors to all come in for rehearsal and work two two weeks beforehand and that right but on on that movie in particular it was really really helpful but I like the uh you know seeing the efficiency of which he you know was both creative and extremely efficient right and that he also does which I do to this day is I don't go out, I don't... I, I stay in the camper and I sleep during lunch. Yeah. And it makes all the difference. And you you knew not to knock on his door from, you know, if you're taking a half hour, hour long, whatever it is. And he'd just come back, you know, shooting out of the cannon. Right. One of
1: the things I always admired about it is this is a story that could have been so sentimental. Mm. It's very dry. Mm-hmm. And it's it's certainly in the writing, you know, it very much in the performances, but there's something about his direction that is very, almost deadpan. No. He, it's very uninflected. Yeah. It's very simple in a way that, there's another movie that it always reminds me of in that way, which is Louis Malle's um, Au Revoir, L'Enfant. Mm-hmm. The The camera couldn't be less obtrusive.
0: It rarely moved. Yeah. There was, it wasn't um, It wasn't that kind of a thing. It was like, the there the are four people at a table, and then a, a fifth, the camera would be like, where, if, if there was a fifth chair. Mm-hmm. And just look around. Just observe. There's a devastating
1: scene that I'll never, I'll never forget. I think everyone who sees the movie always talks about the, um, the wife and her father. Yeah. In the in the yeah. diner.
0: So as I said, it rehearsed, it was Stephen Hill just passed away uh, what about a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was two cameras. I remember thinking I'd never seen that two camera thing before. Uh, Each
1: pointing the other. Yeah. On the other actor. Yeah. yeah.
0: I really wanted to see that scene. I really wanted to see that. And I got hung up at the production office. And, you know, if we had like an 8 o'clock call, I, I think I must have gotten there about 11 a.m. And everybody's in tears. It was so amazing. And he'd already shot the damn scene. It was all done. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> but I got there right afterwards. Yeah. I mean, there was... I've never seen a crew so affected by something. Mm. And everybody knew something unbelievably special had happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Sydney, who'd probably directed must have had moments like that in the past 45 years before this movie he acted like it had never happened before and that was kind of great to see too it was like it was like fresh and new and excited and you know seeing somebody like that that you you know imbue all this experience and all you know from their movies like what could possibly could they get it up about at this point in their life sure it almost feels to me like you started to lose interest in acting around this time, uh, or at least pursuing leads. I, I'm, I'm well, always... I, 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 I'd love to say it was that. I, I was terribly... Um, I had much more perspective about material than I did about my own, like, long-range acting. I knew that I'd been in a really important movie with a really important director with the Scorsese thing, and the next move I found very, really kind of terrifying. Like, what would be my second movie? Whether it would be, you know, what would be the thing I would follow up with? And I overthought it, and I was so sort of anxious about it. And I was being... Here I was being sent every script, and every script was terrible. I mean, really, like, you know, a script called Mannequin. You know, it was like an 80s... Every bad... you got to remember, the majority of movies during the 80s were crap. Yeah. And I wanted to be like, you know, I wanted to do, you know, Woody Allen's next movie, or... You know Jim Jarmusch, or you know be with the be with the cool people. I was getting, you know, whatever big wacko Disney comedy. Yeah. You know, big loud brassy things with you know bad hair and and I and I and I didn't want to do it. I didn't didn't strike me as funny the way you know. I was also you know spoiled rotten from having this extraordinary experience, mm-hmm. and I wanted to have at least an approximation of it happening again. And I chose this incredibly um, delicate um, time to actually then change agents and then greet the new agents by saying you know I'm gonna do a movie I'm gonna produce a movie as my next follow up that I'm not even gonna be in it was just downright weird you know you know I could (laughs) have they they
1: hadn't met your uh, particular brand of no. Of leading man from a... Yeah.
0: No, and I hadn't either. I mean, I, I had a vision of it, but I couldn't even really articulate like the kind of person I wanted to be. Well, I kind of I kind of did in the, and I mean this in the professional way, the, the person I really idolized and was in awe of, who had the career I, I would dream of being, but I would be too shy to say it, was Warren Beatty. You know, Reds had come out. How does somebody make Reds? And act like that. Mm-hmm. And... Oversealed. I thought that was, but that felt too grandiose to say. But but there was somebody you know, sure, who could go back and forth and in and, and do all these things. So I didn't wasn't represented very well at the time, and I wasn't making very good choices. And uh, and I think I was I was kind of I was really young, you know, and I was like more afraid of making. You know, when you're really afraid of making the bad choice, yeah. you're definitely going to make the bad choice. Yeah. You know, I don't think I did myself any favors. Also, you know, when I did. Who's that girl? Madonna was certainly as famous as they come, and it was actually a really fun movie to make. But you know, it was one of those.
1: Well, they kind of had it out for. her.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You it know, didn't and matter so, what that movie so was. Did, it was never going to. And, and and I and I didn't. If I look back on it, I go, "How could you not have known that you were going to sure. get that movie was going to get killed?" So there was all there was a lot of weird choices. So it wasn't like I wasn't uninterested. I just I was more worried about doing something I didn't like. Mm-hmm. I was more worried about being stuck with like hacks or signing on to something that I realized was going to be terrible. Yeah. And I'd rather just I'd rather produce be responsible for something, you know, being good or bad and being able to pick and choose the people I want to spend the next year with, you know? Yeah, it's a fun but choosing you know, choosing a a, a movie at a particular I'm in the process of, of of working on something where i'm I'm casting um uh, meeting like young up and coming kids who are like all in these movies that are, have broken out or are about to break out or all in this and they're uh like eighteen nineteen twenty up to twenty twenty four uh, to play mm-hmm. an adolescent and I don't envy them at all you know there's like uh if they turn me down, I won't take it in the least bit personally because it's really like heady stuff you know it's uh, you're you're getting all this stuff coming your way and it's just as easy to make and especially now you make one movie and it's not the right movie and then people all that glow and then people see you differently and it's like oh you did that and then you're like knocked down like yeah yeah you you really are punished it's
1: quick quick to move on in Mm. in in the film world now when i met you you had just done your short film Mm -hmm. that was not made for an oscar so I almost wonder, like, what took you so long to want to direct a movie? Or why didn't you do that earlier? Because um, that's 1995 when we met.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, now I was truly losing interest in acting, um, which was a terrible feeling. I could feel, like, whatever my... The, the, the kid who moved to New York to study with Sanford Meisner, I could just... That guy just... It eked out of my body. Just mm-hmm. It was just, you know, battery fluid. And it was just... And I was in Toronto, I was making a cable movie where I was and this is when cable was truly tacky, not like anything sexy the way it is now. Right. And I was playing a Martian or a droid. I, I wasn't even sure which and I didn't give a shit. You know? Right. And I went, Oh my god, this is like and I would write this short movie in my in my back when I got back to my hotel. And I said, This is what I'm gonna whatever it takes, I'm gonna get this this thing going. As soon as I decided that's what I wanted to do um, without even knowing all the years of experience as a producer and as an actor and it it all just fell into place and I realized I know exactly how to do this and it flowed out of me on the page and first person I showed it to is here's the money first actors I went to is yes I'll do it and it was it just all fell into place and then when I showed up on the set it was like, why didn't I do this? I asked myself, well, What you right. just asked me, why, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I never felt so at home in my life. Hi, this is Rich. You know Cooper? Yeah. So how you doing?
1: I'm unbelievable. What's up?
0: Um, well, I uh, wanted to ask you if you wanted to go check out Elton John at the Greek sometime. <laughs> what do you mean sometime? Like we pick a day and tell Elton, and he shows up and plays? Do you mean like that? No, I mean this Saturday. You have good tickets? Well, here's the thing is, um, there's this back entrance where they're wheeling the sodas and shit, and it's like never guarded. It's really easy. You want me to sneak in with the Pepsis and the popcorn? This is too good. Jimbo, you gotta hear this. Hey, Cooper, are you trying to snake my girlfriend? Do you realize what I'm going to do to your face tomorrow? The film has resurfaced in my life again because it's, uh, it's based on a, on, a, on, a, on a real party I went to when I was a kid. Yeah, and, I wanted to ask
1: you about yeah, that. Yeah, well,
0: my aunt and uncle, who were the writers John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion, gave a party. They were in, lived on Franklin here in, here in Hollywood in this, like, old crumbly kind of villa. They gave this party that Janis Joplin was going to go to. And it was a party actually for Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, had just come out. It's tends to be a book party, but it was the hippie party to end all hippie parties. And I was desperate to go, and I was like 12, maybe 13. And uh, I begged my mother to take me, and to my surprise, she said yes, it was on a school night. And, I, and then I became incredibly anxious because I realized, you know, when I meet Janice, and we really hit it off. She's gonna ask, you know, where, you know, let's go somewhere. And I'll say, I can't, I'm here with my mother. So, I mean, these are the things I worried about. While I was wandering around, I mean, I was a kid, nobody even talked to me. I just would walk around and eavesdrop and watch people sneak off into bedrooms and smoke joints and stuff. This bald German man, who I presume to be Colonel Klemp from Hogan's Heroes, <laughs> grabbed me pulled me down and said, you must not leave. I like your vibe. I take acid. I'm bumming out. I'm bumming out. You stay here. I like your vibe. And uh, it was auto-preminger. Oh, how weird. Yeah. Anyway, that's not That's
1: not a story you ever hear about (laughs)
0: auto-preminger. No. He took acid and can't you, I can't think of anyone who should let, who should have taken acid less. (laughs) I don't yeah. want to be in that mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever he was hallucinating, I never want to know. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Did
1: you read Joan Didion's work when you were growing up? Yeah. Did you grasp her, 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 how uh, massive her, her influence was going to be on that generation? Or it, It's so strange when you're related to a writer. It's not always yeah. easy to you know. To, I would to say, see through other people's eyes.
0: You know, I had a... Um, uh, I grew up as a very uh, troubled student, I was uh, very dyslexic, and I had a really hard, I couldn't add, and I was like one of those people they assumed was retarded, and I was held back a year and all that stuff. Whenever a, a book of theirs came out, either John or Jones, we were always given an early copy, and it was always signed, and, and for whatever reason, both Jones' writing and John's I could easily absorb. Now not for everyone. John's much easier because it had a kind of catholic rhythm something i felt very related to. Not all of John's John, some of John's stories were were sort of too deep for me to absorb. But but then others like slouching towards bethlehem i understood that to be about, you know, about hippies in a way that I never thought of hippies before, of runaway kids who are, like, my age and incredibly fucked up parents who, you know, do drugs in front of them. And it was, like, you know, riveting. Um, but then she would write a story about, you know, on self-respect, you know, about how to look at your life when you reach a certain age and you see you're not the per- kind of person you thought you were going to be. And, you know, I said, Mom, I'm 12. I mean, I'm 13, 14, whatever. I don't know what the hell she's talking about. Right. Um, but I did later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I find uh, John Gregory Dunn a terribly underrated writer. I couldn't agree more. I love his novels. I I love Dutch Shade Jr. I've read that several times. It's literally like a one sitting, it's so funny and so emotional and so crazy. It's
0: so funny. It's so funny. And he also wrote, speaking of the movie business, well, he wrote great pieces about the movie business in general, but he wrote The Studio, which is exactly the time that we're talking about when I was you know the Dr. Doolittle years where these studios have no idea that how irrelevant they are right and how out of touch and John saw that coming a mile away and he'd sit in the room with these with these old producers who had no idea who their audience was. Right. Just blowing all this money left and right in these flop movies that the best part about it was the credit sequences, you know, and and it's really funny.
1: Yeah, no, the studio's great. It's a very, um, it's journalism but not written from that. I, I, how do you describe the studio? Because <laughs> it, it sort of reads like a rye. It's it's Not John's voice looking at yeah. yeah. It's John's voice, but it's everyone's and, in it real. He names names. He talks names about.
0: names, and and you know pity the people. Although you know people in Hollywood, they say I don't care what you write about me as long as you write about me. I would think that they, you would think there'd be a fatwa put out on him after this book came out, but no, it actually he became a screenwriter that funny after yeah. writing these you know hilarious put downs of these of these of these people there's a, there's
1: a scene in it that is it's so painful but it's so it's so funny the the by then he must have I was going to say the old director he was probably in his 60s uh, but yeah. Henry Koster right. who had made big Deanna Durbin musicals in the 30s and 40s comes in to pitch Richard Zanuck who's then running Fox, mm-hmm. on his new idea for a musical and I can't recount it but it's you know, it's 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 hopeless. It's a nineteen forty Deanna Durbin yeah. musical, and the children all have to raise money for the orchestra. Otherwise, the little girl's going to get sick. And blah, 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 blah. so he goes through the whole pitch. He leaves the room. There's a pause, and then the last line of the chapter is: Richard Zanuck said, "Jesus,
0: <laughs> <laughs> know, and they let him. He got Richard Zanuck to let him sit in on. He, he brought a memo to every. <laughs> All the departments and all the producers on the lot and he goes, you know, John Gregory Dunn is if he comes to your office and you're having meetings, I'd like him to have him sit in on your meetings, he's you let him be a fly on the wall. Yeah. Well he showed them. No, I know. Who why why do they allow <laughs> I access don't know. like that? Why I, did I there's don't a, know. there's a crazy
1: auto preminger book c- called uh, Soon to be a Major Motion Picture. Mm-hmm about one of his last films, it was called Rosebud, a, a, a catastrophe from the moment yeah. the film yeah. started, you know. And this is a very strong, powerful, intelligent personality. Why would Otto Preminger have allowed this guy to fall? And the book's another, like, it's the studio. It's, the, yeah. it's a tragicomic well, you know, story of how wrong showbiz can go, yeah. you know? And
0: there's the uh, Bonfire of the Vanities book.
1: Oh, about the making of the movie, about you're about the right. About yeah. of the
0: movie, of which Brian actually is still friends with the writer. They, they, they stayed friends.
1: So this is cool. I love talking with you. This was nice. Good. I want to give you uh, uh, the opportunity to either quash a, a piece of internet ephemera or confirm it. What this has to do with Othello and the reason you were kicked out of school?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Is that that's uh, internet it's, ephemera? It's, it's, it's Wikipedia worthy. I just no shit. I, 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 I want to hear the the Othello. Um. Uh, uh, well, because it sounds like a, Griffin Dunn as Othello or Iago, even from uh, the beginning, uh, and yeah, I don't understand yeah. it. No, I, I
0: have to tell you, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a seminal moment. Um, I had this this kid in high school. We'd been to a previous high school. We've been going to boarding schools both as kids. We both from you know the kind of families that send their kids you know thousands of miles away to school from the time they're eleven. And this kid and I met when we were eleven, and then we went on to this to the high school prep school part and it was in the high school prep school part that i got really into acting i was like i discovered i did zoo story and i became just the joe actor on campus and i loved it and my friend had an equal passion in dope and discovered all sorts of hallucinogens and things and and so we drifted apart because i became joe actor and he was you know joe head <laughs> and he came into my and i'm rehearsing othello i'm playing iago and it is, uh, and it is really exciting. I mean, it's really like I can't, you know. I've always thought, you know, I said I had a reading problem and dyslexic, and uh, Shakespeare's language I always found in pentra. I just understood this, the rhythm and the, the pentameter and the passion and the evil and the. And uh, I'm really, really fucking into it. And this kid comes into my room and he's got a like a hash pipe. He goes, oh, hey man, we never hang out. We don't get high anymore. You know, what do, you just want to do about acting and stuff like that. And he does this guilt trip. He goes, let's just take a little hit of the bowl, man. We're just gonna do. I really, saw so Johnny, really, I don't, I do I, I go, come on, man, you really changed. And that, for some reason, used to be a terrible insult. So I said, okay, just give me that damn. And I take this big pull. And in walks a teacher. And the the smoke is in my lungs. He goes, "Somebody smoking dope in here?" And I go, "No." (laughs) And this plume comes flying out of my, (laughs) floating out of my mouth. And you know, it's a very strict school. They were dying to kick him out. They were uh, not so crazy about me, especially since the performance was the next night. And they said, if you just say you weren't doing it and he was, you are good, and he'll go. And it was it reminded me of which i think came out around the same time but it reminded me a little bit of uh, that scene in dog day afternoon yeah where in the car it's like You're you th- be you fine. think
1: you think i'll give up sal <laughs> yeah <that's all laughs> yeah, right. yeah you think of a-
0: <laughs> <laughs> and i couldn't give up sal
1: yeah
0: i don't know why i just you know i'm not even friends with this guy anymore but i was i was kicked out i was on a, I was on a i took a bus home cuz that's what romantic people do when they get kicked out of school and i and i was on a bus Cross country the next day. That sucks.
1: If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at movies till dawn podcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, movies till if you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestoldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research.